Uh, the inevitable depression that comes following Easter, at least for those who carry any consciousness of Easter other than a break from school. Never forget the woman who stood up in some sort of uh, animus possession with a hyperthyroid look <laughs> and said to me, why can't they plan Easter around the school holidays? <laughs> didn't go into the explanation that one predated the other, but she would. So if there are those of you who see Easter as other than school holidays, then we carry some residual uh, depression about the new life and the responsibility thereof. Uh, but I don't feel depressed today. I do feel sad today, though, in a kind of uh, interesting sadness, which I will share with you, uh, because I have been through a an important transition, uh, one that came to me uh, like most transitions as a surprise, unplanned, uh, and yet it uh, presented itself to me. I remember Nathaniel and Philip being confused about Jesus and saying uh, that this is the Messiah and, and one saying to the other, well, what good can come out of Nazareth? Uh, this uh, transition for me I uh, came out of a most unlikely place, a uh, place that I had never thought uh, that good transition in psyche and spirit would uh, emanate for me, but it came out of all places, uh, the River Oaks Rotary Club. Uh, not generally known for its psychotherapeutic... <laughs> offerings, but uh, over a year ago, the River Oaks Rotary Club decided for civic reasons and for uh, sentimental reasons to establish a Defensive Basketball Player of the Year Award and uh, do so in honor of Henry P. Iba, uh, who was the basketball coach for 30 years at Oklahoma State University, and some of you know was my basketball coach at Oklahoma State University. Uh, that is going to be awarded today at noon at halftime at the Rockets game, and uh, if you're like I am and have to go to church, <laughs> uh, it's going to be on channel 11 at noon, which you'll get to see this legend Mr. Iba. Um, so the River Oaks Rotary Club decided to honor the Defensive Player of the Year and name this trophy annually as the Henry P. Iba Corinthian Award and so it will be uh, given today at noon and so they asked me, that is the River Oaks Rotary Club asked me last Tuesday if I would come and speak about my experiences with Mr. Iba and do somewhere between a rencontre and reminiscence of my uh, time uh, with Mr. Iba, and so I did on Tuesday. <clears throat> um, out of that, then, they invited me to uh, host and be at dinner with Mr. Iba last night, and so uh, last night I was picked up by a chauffeured limousine and taken to Stauffer's to pick up Mr. Iba and then go to 
a local restaurant of great repute and overpriced. <laughs> and to have a dinner with Mr. Ivan, a young man named Billy King, who was a guard on the Final Four basketball team at Duke University, who is one of the nominees for the Player of the Year. The other two are in All-Star Games in, uh, in Florida, and one of whom is not coming because, as he said to the sponsors, what's in it for me? <laughs> All of which will be woven into the difference in, in athletics today as the good old days. <laughs> uh, so I ruminated uh, all yesterday about the possibility that this uh, kind of unplanned uh, occasion might hold for me uh, the opportunity for reconciliation. And the reason for that is that uh, one of the things that happened to me in my developmental stage of adolescence is that uh, I had developed an ego state that Fritz, Fritz Kunkel, the great psychotherapist and Jungian analyst, calls the star ego state. And that's where the young one is primed uh, to be a star, and then at some point, uh, if he doesn't mature, he becomes the star's opposite in ego state, which is called the clinging vine. And there's nothing sadder than a star that has reached its apogee and is hanging on uh, to a former dream. Uh, that's the clinging vine. And so I saw this as a possibility of a reconciliation for what happened to me uh, as many of you know, was that being a high school star, a high school All-American, widely recruited and yet choosing <laughs> and yet choosing to go to Oklahoma State University because all little boys in Oklahoma want to go to Oklahoma State University and play basketball for Henry P. Iba and that's what I did and when I arrived there I discovered that uh, big fishes in little ponds become little fishes in huge ponds when you get to college and I suffered uh, that disease known as chronic lack of ability. <laughs> I was slow, but I couldn't jump very high. Uh, because of the award, the Corinthian Award for the best defensive player, you can derive by uh, some logic that Mr. Iba's real expertise and contribution to the world of college basketball was that he was a defensive coach. Uh, well, I could shoot your eyes out, but I couldn't cover my mother. <laughs> if you remember, Mr. Ivey used to say, Son, I can make you quicker, but I can't make you quick. Mr. I've always liked me, as I said last night at the table in the presence of uh, the great legend and in the presence of the College All-American, 
And I said with, with uh, com conviction that the fact that I didn't play at Oklahoma State was not the star that I had anticipated I would be or that my parents had anticipated that I would be. Uh, that Mr. Iba, whether you were the best player on the team or the worst player on the team, I said this in his presence and I saw he was moved by this, that Mr. Iba always treated all the players the same, the best or the worst. He treated us all like dogs. <laughs> As I've told a story before, uh, the thing that was the downfall of Mr. Ivo was his refusal to recruit. There were two things that changed college basketball. And I say this descriptively, and I don't say it with any bigotry at all, the, the two things that changed college basketball was, was the integration of college ad, athletics with blacks, and the other was TV. TV has dramatically changed college basketball and to entertainment. The facts are, Mr. Iba would rather, in terms of playing basketball, he'd rather there be no crowd there at all. I mean, you play the game for the game's sake, and uh, it didn't really play for entertainment. Uh, but so he didn't recruit. I mean, it was not within him. As he said last night, and I've heard him say before, uh, that he just couldn't bring himself to lie to an 18-year-old boy about either how great he was or how great he would be if he came to his school. The second thing is, he said, I could never cheat because he said, I don't think I could ever get a kid to play for me who knew I was a cheater. And so his style of recruiting was anachronistic. As I, I remember, uh, when I was a junior in high school, I was all city in Oklahoma City and led the city in scoring. I got a telephone call from him at school. Uh, they sent, uh, with a pass to go to the principal's office, which uh, brought me uh, high levels of anxiety. <laughs> uh, but I had a long distance phone call, and it was from Mr. Ivan Stillwater. Uh, in which he said, um, I want you to come to Oklahoma State University. That was all he said. That was all he needed to say. And then in my senior year, uh, we moved in my senior year to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and he called me much the same in the spring, and he said, now I want you to come to Oklahoma State University, and I want you to play basketball, but I don't want you to come over here unless you want to get an education. Now, can you get a ride over here? Realizing that I was widely recruited and they were <laughs> flying me all over the country and places and meeting me at the plane with pom-pom girls and uh, t-shirts and promises of rides on airplanes for my family, all of which was illegal. And Mr. Ivan said, can you get a ride over here? So I got a ride over there. One of the great family tragedies uh, and stories is that uh, I rode over there with my mother. <laughs> And so we both kept our bargain. I tried as hard as I could, and I did graduate. And he didn't kick me off the team, or as is known uh, in the profession, break my plate uh, because I didn't play.
But I've always had this residual in me uh, that I've worked on trying to irrigate by prayer and psychotherapy and all other kinds of means, the sense that I didn't make it. The sense that I didn't really get to be a star in college basketball. And I, I've pretty well outgrown that, but and because of the River Oaks Rotary Club <laughs> and Mr. Iva coming to town and them picking me up in a limousine and I was to meet him and go to dinner with him, last night began to loom for me as a, a final time for resolution. Now, Mr. Iba had the greatest influence on me between leaving home and getting married for four years uh, than, than anybody did. Now, more in terms of a kind of symbolic uh, superego in influence than true, real influence, but indeed as a symbol for me of a lot of stuff of uh, power that has both the bittersweet uh, mixed together. And so here uh, we go in this limousine to Stouffer's to pick up uh, this legend, the Iron Duke Henry P. Iba. And so we came into the foyer of Stouffer's last night and the other host uh, picked up the house phone and called upstairs and Mr. Iba, because he's now 82, uh, has a traveling companion who's a vice president at Oklahoma State named Pat Leffler that I knew Pat from the days because he used to travel with the team. And so I had just a moment to kind of prepare myself as the elevator came down and out they stepped. And I haven't seen Mr. Iva in years. I saw him briefly a few years ago, maybe five years ago, at the all-college basketball tournament in Oklahoma City. Uh, but as he came out of the elevator, the legend, this great influence, this unreconciled mythological character bigger than life uh, came out looking very much 82 years of age. The first thing he said to me as he came was, and you remember that I was affectionately known in those days as Pitt. Why, Pitt, you look great. You look like you could still play. the experience where where life becomes freeze-framed. <laughs> Stouffer's became a basketball court. <laughs> and there I was given my chance to play. Now, all was white and amber. Mr. Iba sat at his typical place on the bench. He was in his late 50s. I was 18. My parents were in the crowd, my girlfriend was in the crowd. Uh, all of those people uh, that I wanted to so much to see me as a star, even my own children were in the crowd. <laughs> a nice thing about a daydream is you can not be bound by time or space or reality. And I was given that opportunity to play. And I took advantage of it. In that moment, <clears throat> I played. And then I came back reality. I came back because 
And Pat Leffler said to me, my God, Pitt, you've lost your hair. <laughs> but it was okay because Mr. Ivo said, I have it committed to my ego consciousness. Mr. Ivo said, you look like you can still play. And he's right. So we got in the car and we, we had with us this young All-American from Duke and we got to this overpriced restaurant and we were having a drink before dinner, which in itself, my sitting next to Mr. Iba, he 82 and I 44, uh, drinking together, uh, somehow reconciling uh, much of his power over me and coming into adulthood and seeing his frailty. Uh, the young man who was sitting across from us, Billy King, said to me, well, Father, I understand you played for Mr. Iva. And I said, well, I wanted to very badly. <laughs> to myself, I said, and I just did. <laughs> he said, how long ago was that? <clears throat> looking at a 22-year-old young man having played 24 years ago, and I said it was before you were born. Once again, life was put on hold, a parenthesis around the setting, and there I sat. I was in my 80s, and here uh, were all of the people in my life that had influenced me and over whom I'd had uh, some modicum of influence, and I sat as a wisdom, uh, telling old stories, reminiscing, throwing out aphorism, uh, regaling them with all of my experience. I played ball before you were born. And in a nice way, I had been 18 and 80 in one evening with two questions, one statement and one question. You look like you could still play. And the other, how long ago was it that you could play? Uh, we went to dinner. <clears throat> uh, they seated me at the head with Mr. Ivo on one side and this young man on the other side. And well, it was great conversation. One of the things a young man was interested in was Coach Eddie Sutton, who's going to be here to present the award tomorrow. And Eddie Sutton played for Mr. Iba uh, before I did in the 50s. Eddie's some older than I. And he said, well, Mr. Iba, tell me about Eddie Sutton, who's now the head coach at Kentucky, as many of you know. And Mr. Iba said, Driver said he could shoot your eyes out, but he couldn't cover his mother, just like this kid here. <laughs> and so in a breath, I was put in the same league with Eddie Sutton. <laughs> uh, it was 
fashionably dark in the restaurant, and Mr. Iba was having great difficulty with his uh, menu. One of those long, floppy, laminated menus, and it was a little dark, and I could tell that he was having trouble getting it open, and I knew that if he got it open, I wasn't sure that he was going to be able to see, because there were a couple of occasions for reading earlier where he seemed to not want anything. Uh, and so I said, Mr. Iba, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I want you to order for me. Uh, I don't know why it's the small things for me that loom so large, but uh, here was the Iron Duke, Mr. Iba, asking me to order for him. I could feel his leg sort of tremor underneath the table, and his hands would shake as he would try to open uh, the menu. And his frailty, uh, I felt very powerful. I uh, felt as if uh, he was looking to me uh, to take care of him for the evening, both in conversation because he had a little difficulty in hearing, uh, but also I was the only one there that he really knew. And so it was up to me to kind of take care of him yesterday evening. And so I ordered for him. Uh, now, one of the things I want to do is not build up Mr. Iba as either this great overwhelming legend or this feeble old man, but just a real human being. He has the greatest gentility about him. He's a very much of a gentleman, uh, while at the same time he has a side to him that I know very well that I'd seen so often. Uh, two examples. One, the waiter at this fashionable overpriced restaurant uh, is a kind of, was a kind of what I call the pestering waiter. Uh, you know, that continually comes around and pours your glass full and uh, sweeps things and uh, readjusts things and moves glasses around and moves them and removes them and replaces them and so forth. And it was really driving Mr. Iba crazy, I could tell. It wasn't the attention that you usually get at the chicken shack in Stillwater. <laughs> That's where they put the chicken fried steak on the bottom and the french fries on the chicken fried steak and then the gravy over all of them. <laughs> I said to Mr. Iva as I poured over the menu for him that the closest I could get to chicken fried steak was the beef wellington. <laughs> he said to me, and, he, and with that kind of look that I'd seen before that so threatened me, though now I was powerful, he said, don't you wish they'd get that damn waiter out of here? <laughs> a real gruff voice and it had the sound that I remember when he would say, Pitch, you can't cover your mother. <laughs> uh, the facts are, his name is Henry P-A-Y-N-E Iba. Uh, from the end of the table, somebody asked Mr. Iba last night, what's the P stand for in Henry P. Iba? And I said, representing a whole uh, four generations of young men who wanted this opportunity. 
uh, Mr. Iba, what does the P stand for? And I yelled out, PAIN! two boys who live in my house with me. Uh, Mr. Iba's writing was, is uh, legible, but it's very difficult to read. And uh, he said to me, <clears throat> he said, well, Pitt, if they can't, if they can't read my name, you can at least tell them who I am. For me, it's always been the little things uh, that are important. And in that statement of being able to tell them who he is, I know more today than I did on Friday about who I am. I'm an accumulation of uh, promise and fulfillment and expectation and failure. Uh, I'm an accumulation of being 18. I have not lost being 18. I can still play. And while at the same time I'm 80, full of the reflection of the wisdom that's come to me by not being a star and refusing to become a clinging vine. I am powerful, uh, even though in the moments of expectation waiting for Mr. Iva to come down to where I was, uh, I felt like a, a child. Uh, looking so much for approval, uh, looking so much for authentication and affirmation from an adult father figure. Uh, I'm all those things. Uh, I don't know that I have uh, finally resolved the failure of not being the, the best basketball player that ever came out of Oklahoma. I don't know that I would resolve that. I don't know that it needs to be resolved. But I do know this, that <clears throat> it really didn't make any difference to Mr. Iowa. Last night, it made absolutely no difference to him as to whether I was a star or not. The only thing it seemed to me that to make any difference to him was that I could be able to tell my boys who he was. You can tell them who I am. And he gave me permission to be as he is, and that is real. And one of the things now that's changed is that this great, huge father figure for me has become real. And that's why I'm a little sad because it's a loss. Uh, it's a loss of the fact that I really am not 18 and that my father figures are all beginning to fade and this has been the kind of paradynamical father figure uh, with whom I had a drink and ordered food for. Uh, given the mission uh, to tell people who he is and he's real. Now being real is a 
is very difficult for us. It's, it was difficult for him to be real with young men. He had to be a mythological character, but he doesn't need to do that with me. I guess I have the need to be mythological characters and stars for others, but I think really the best gift I can give anybody is to be real, to be believable, to be authentic. And so I have now integrated another uh, large piece of my life and realized that I have to be my own model for masculinity and femininity and uh, motherhood and fatherhood, and that I have to reach always beyond the grasp of that that I uh, can touch uh, in order to finally uh, reach the ultimate father figure and mother figure, which is God, as revealed in Christ. And so my theology looms up once again as being experiential. Now, my message, I think, carries uh, all the implications that anybody with any wisdom can figure out for themselves. Simply told you a story. But within that story, it seems to me, is the gospel. It's the story of growing up and then growing down and finally realizing uh, that we are fully real and that reality is costly but it's like the Velveteen Rabbit said, once you become real, you can't be unreal except to those who don't understand. And I understand. I understand Mr. Ive a lot better, but I understand myself even more so. And that love, that God is love, and those who dwell in love dwell in God and God in them. Love really has to do with accepting one another's reality. And we do that by the hard way because we want people to be either great enemies that we can blame or perfect people that will take care of us. And if we do that to anybody, we can never have a relationship with them. And we can never allow somebody to have a relationship with us as long as we're trying to be godlike or as long as we're trying to make them bear the bur carry the burden for our own inadequacies. But to be real costs you. You remember the Bevelteen Rabbit said that by the time you become real, you have all your hair loved off. <laughs> but once you become real, you can never be unreal except to those who don't understand. And I hope you understand. I beg of you to please understand that that reality, though it makes you sad, uh, reality makes you grow up. And then, once you're grown up, then you can play again. Next time you're in Stouffer's, I want you to look in the corner because I left something there. Amen.